the humanities and social sciences. Welcome to another episode of Oh the Humanities and the Social Sciences, the hashtag hashchat podcast. I'm Marco Cimino, and in this episode, I'm joined by Alethea Kinsella, who will be talking about archaeology, archaeology education, history, and alternative history fiction. Hi there. In this episode, I'm joined by Alethea Kinsella, uh, English and history educator, archaeologist, novelist. Hello. Hi. Hey, going, Marco? Well, thanks. How are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, look, thanks for agreeing to come on the show. Did I miss anything in that uh, in that brief bio? What else can you tell our listeners about yourself? Oh, look, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. I started out doing history and English teaching, and um, I've got a bit of a publishing background as well, a bit of writing. Um, I moved into archaeology, and I now teach at La Trobe in the education faculty there. So I do a bit of a bit of all sorts of stuff. I also run archaeology workshops for kids um, in schools and also set up, help um, other places set up their archaeology programs. So I'm currently doing one in Hillsville at the Hedge and Maze. We've got a summer archaeology program running there for visitors. Now, so what's your role in um, within education uh, in terms of your background as a history an English teacher particularly, uh, how many years have you been teaching at a school level before you moved into um, that um, that higher education role? Oh, look, I've been in and out of schools for probably about 10 years or so. Um, I started out high school teaching in about 2008 and then I moved into archaeology a few years after that, but I went back into the school system after I'd done a bit of archaeology for a while. So I'm actually combining my archaeology background and my teaching background at the moment and also do the, the writing on the side. So, I mean, I, I haven't been a full-time teacher uh, for the last um, sort of probably six years or so, but I, I move in and out of the tertiary and the secondary and the primary sectors um, where I can and, and where uh, where my interests take me. Can I, can I ask why you, you made that shift from teaching to archaeology and then back? Is that... Oh, look, I had always wanted to do archaeology. When I was in Year 10, I did Year 10 work experience with an archaeologist in Western Sydney. I grew up in a really small country town um, and there weren't a lot of opportunities for Year 10 students doing their work experience except maybe at the local news agency or, you know, doing office work at an accounting firm or, you know, just things like that. And I had bigger dreams than that. So I... um, I was fortunate my dad actually went to uni with an archaeologist and she was happy to take me on for a week. So I went out to Western Sydney on an old defence industry site that they just sold off to uh, developers, housing developers, and they needed the archaeologist to go in and just do, do a few test pits in there. Um, so we went in and we were looking particularly for, um, uh, well, stone tools, Aboriginal, Indigenous artefacts in there. Uh, and they gave, they'd given us a, a really rough photocopied sheet of all of the dangers we might encounter because it was an old defence industry site. They'd done a lot of training there and they said they had accounted for most things, um, but we might find, you know, the odd bullet or bullet casing or things like that. And, and there was also a really detailed description of green and blue off-coloured soil that we needed to look out for. So if we were digging with our shovels in the soil, we needed to really watch out for this particular coloured soil and if we found it, we were to get the hell out of there because it could be a landmine. 
So oh, well, that's not, yeah, that's not scary at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't really think twice about it when I was, you know, 16 out in mm. the middle of nowhere. But look, it was, I just found it absolutely fascinating. Um, I learned all about stone tool technology when I was there. Well, as much as you could in a, in the space of a week. Um, and I just fell in love with it, but I didn't really consider it, uh, as a career option. Um, and at the time I had, I had other interests, music and writing and, and teaching. So I pursued that. And, um, I found when I went into history teaching as a high school teacher, the, um, the textbooks, particularly when it comes to, uh, you know, Australian history uh, and Indigenous history, the textbooks were really quite inadequate and I found myself really yearning to learn more about that. Uh, so I ended up quitting teaching for a little while and went into archaeology and ended up um, being an archaeologist for a couple of years. So that's how I got into it. Fantastic. Oh, look, that, that's a great um, great bio to have. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we, we all have dreams of what we want to do and very little people actually you know, say, I want to, I've always wanted to be an archaeologist, I'm going to go do it, or I've always wanted to do this, I'm going to go do it. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, um, yeah. No, and, and I think I think a lot of people in Australia have dreams of being archaeologists because, or, or at least have this sort of romanticised dream because we don't have what is this um, sort of Western concept of history or that really rich civilization history in Australia like they do in, say, Europe or South America or Asia, um, even though we have an incredibly rich um indigenous history we have here what we don't you know people look at our landscape and and don't really consider that to be um uh, i suppose comparable to some of the great structures that you might see in say rome or or um you know over in mexico or you know wherever these other places are so i was more interested in, in learning more about australian indigenous history and you know that kind of really rich culture that we have here yeah, look, uh, look. As as a kid growing up, the the movie that was biggest when I was a kid was uh, Jurassic Park, oh, and that uh, yeah. so that sort of ruled my um that ruled my um my childhood, and I always had dreams of wanting to become a paleontologist. Well, I'm really um, glad you had yeah. that. That <laughs> I was scared <laughs> out of my skin by that movie. I hated it. <laughs> oh, really? Why is that? Oh, it just I don't know. It made the dinosaurs just really really frightened me from that movie. Oh, okay. I love I love love looking them digging them up and things like that if we do happen to to find some um, but yeah no that movie still gives me the shivers <laughs> oh, look, just just quietly um, the movie ET used to freak the hell out of me oh, as a kid yeah yeah that, um, that's a scary one too <laughs> I don't know why I've I've still not actually seen it to you know I'm I'm almost thirty mm. I've not I've still not seen it to this day. Oh, um, yeah. No, anyway, yeah, sorry. Oh, look, I'm, yeah, I'm a complete wimp when it comes to scary movies. I mean, we're, I've got a few young kids and we're, we're sort of getting to the point where we are watching things like E.T. And, and reliving our childhood movies and I'm sort of watching it going, that's actually really quite scary. I don't think I want to watch that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, look, look, we'll, we'll keep going with the, with the archaeology um, yeah. sort of track before we have a chat about your other um, your other sort of um, gig, which is the um, uh, the writing. Mm. Um, for any any sort of stage four history uh, teachers or students, even that are listening, um, there's often a, a confusion or a bit of a mix between what is history and what is archaeology. Mm. Can you can you provide us with a very clear sort of definition or distinction for us? Sure. So. The way I see it is that um, archaeology or 
Well, let's start with history. History, I, I think, is everything that is um, remembered, recorded or preserved of the past. So historians tend to study um, evidence to learn what life was like in the past, uh, to see what changes have taken place over the years and what has stayed the same and to identify patterns. So that's that's how I, I view history. Um, archaeology is the study of the human past or particularly human past past human behaviour using scientific analysis of material remains. So any kind of remains or material remains that are left by humans. Now that could be, um, it could be something that, that people have made. It could be something that people have used somehow, for example, bones that are left over from their dinner. Uh, or it could be something that is significant to people. So it might be something that they haven't actually changed uh, or created, but that is significant to them. So that's essentially what archaeology is. And we are looking at past human behaviour, not just of modern humans, but also of all of our ancestors through evolution. Uh, so archaeology uh, can go back at the moment um, to about 7 million years, which is our earliest ancestor that they've found in Africa. Uh, history tends to, history as a discipline and as a study area tends to cut off kind of, you know, maybe around about the time when writing starts to take place. Um, you know, you're looking at maybe mm, anywhere between six to 10,000 years ago. Uh, so that's kind of around the sort of realm of history. That's the way I understand it. Okay. Um, look, in terms of in terms of the um, the, his, the history side of it, mm. um, there, are, there are current issues in terms of um, in terms of preservation of, of historical sites, mm. um, particularly issues around tourism at the moment. Mm. Um, so, particularly battling things like climate change in the first place in the natural sphere, um, and then, for example, Venice. Um, then you add on top of that tourists. Mm. Uh, that are going and damaging some historical sites mm. um, or people that visit Pompeii and, and move around or touch, um, you know, ancient pieces of art or, or, or um, infrastructure in order to take the perfect selfie for their holiday snaps. Yeah. Where, where do you, what, what do you see as an issue in that or, or how, can we, how can we actually try and stop that happening in the first place? Can we stop that happening? Oh, look, I, I don't know if you could ever really stop that happening, but um, education certainly helps. You know, the more people understand um, the significance or um, the role of a particular site that, that it plays to not only wider society but also um, future generations, then perhaps the more appreciation and care people will have with that site. Um I actually am running a, the archaeology program at the Hedge and Maze in Hillsville at the moment and I've had kids digging up in our sandpit. We just have, you know, just the odd bit of broken pottery and things like that for them to dig up, nothing particularly special. But I quite often get kids asking, can I take this piece home with me? And I have to explain to them, you know, if you took one piece and then the next person took another piece and then the next person took another piece, soon there would be nothing left for people to find in our sandpit. So should you be taking this artefact with you or not? And so when they realise that, they think, okay, well, you know, that that's actually important. It's important for other people to be able to appreciate and, and have fun with this activity. And I don't think a lot of people have that understanding. And I think that, you know, if they are taking things or even moving things around, you know, it's, it's effectively um, 
uh, not really destroying it, although some people do destroy these sites. You know, it, it's it's spoiling it for other people, and and I think people don't really, some people don't have that awareness that that's actually happening. Um, we've got a good example of legislation actually that um, is happening in Australia at the moment around convict sites. So a couple of years ago, there were oh, six or seven, I think, um, major convict sites around Australia that were listed as UNESCO World Heritage Sites, so things like Norfolk Island and Fremantle and Port Arthur, places like that. Um, And they were listed as significant historical sites. However, a couple of them, and I'm thinking particularly of Port Arthur, but there are a couple involved, also have quite significant Aboriginal features in them. So down at Port Arthur, um, perhaps not necessarily at the main penitentiary, but over on the coal mines section, which is um, a bit of a drive away from the main Port Arthur site, there are quite a few middens along the coast uh, which are not being protected because the focus is on the convict heritage and not the Indigenous heritage. So, you know, you're also looking at the um, price that you are paying for protecting one aspect of a site over Mm. another aspect of a site and, you know, there's that dichotomy there as well so yeah it's kind of I mean places like Pompeii and Venice and and other places like that it is a little bit more clear cut because you sort of only have one I suppose um, site or civilization or Mm -hmm. you know sort of particular area that you want to preserve so that is a little bit more straightforward but I think it is important that we try and preserve all of it um, whether it is more recent or whether it is um, older or whether it's seen or unseen. And I guess I guess the issue might um, uh, might arise as well, as you mentioned, that with the, do we um, protecting the convict mm. um, sort of past, um, but then, you know, if, if it's a case of by protecting one, we damage the other for, for forever, um, you can't save both, mm. what wins out? How do you decide which sort of um, which site or which artefact is worth saving in terms of, the historical significance yeah. and the cultural significance. Yeah, and that's a really hard question to answer, really. I mean, you'd look at it case by case, but, you know, ideally you wouldn't destroy either of them. But, of course, there are circumstances where you really do need to make a choice. Um, and certainly if you're doing some sort of rescue archaeology where you have to take something away, otherwise it will be destroyed, such as is happening in Venice, for example. You can't move the whole city, obviously. Um, but, you know, we are affecting it through climate change and there's many other places around the world um, where the archaeology is being destroyed because of climate change, thinking particularly of of, um, some low-lying islands out in the Pacific. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's a really really tough one to to figure out. Yeah. And look, now going back to, you mentioned, you know, protection of artefacts, do you you Mm. believe this is where museums um, play an important role or do do you have any any reservations with any... any, um, any use of museums? Oh, not at, at all. all. But I, I do think you have to take the particular artefacts and the culture that they come from into consideration. So there, it's very, it's very common practice say, in Europe to, um, you know, if you have an archaeological dig or if somebody finds something by accident in a field, you know, there are laws and and um, sort of legislation that that might protect those artefacts, and they might have to go into a museum or go to a historical society or you know, whatever it is. And, and, and in many cases that can happen and um, particularly significant artefacts of quite 
um, significant value or if they're rare or if they're unique and interesting or, of, um, you know, some sort of special community value, then it's great having them on display. But if you think about um, some of the artefacts that might be special to Indigenous cultures and particularly things that are um, associated with ceremony or, you know, men's business or women's business, you know, things like that, those sorts of things, you know, they are in museums but they're not allowed to be on display for um, for cultural reasons. So you need to take those sorts of things into account. And there's also um, particular regions of Australia where, um, you know, it is common practice to give once the dig has happened, once the excavation has happened and all the analysis has happened and the archaeologists have have gathered as much data as they can from these stone artefacts. Well, they're mainly stone artefacts. Um, in many cases, they are handed back to community and they're uh, reburied uh, uh, on country, um, so that so that they they're gone. They've gone back into the ground, and you know that doesn't just happen with with human remains. It happens with with um, uh, with artefacts that have come out of the ground through an excavation as well. So yeah, it depends. It depends on the community that you're working with okay. and and the people who are, who have a vested interest in the in the artifacts. So look, if any, if any listeners happen to find a, you know, uh, some sort of golden coin in their backyard <laughs> that predates history, probably not a good idea to pocket it. Um, well, in Australia, be... I don't think there's. No. <laughs> I'm not aware of any legislation that says you must hand something historical in, unless, you know, maybe it's um, a little bit on the controversial side or yeah. if it is of significant value. We don't have the same sort of um, laws that, that, you know, require you to, uh, you know, I don't think we have any kind of treasure laws like they have in the UK. You know, if you find a gold ring, for example, you have to go and hand it in and just make sure that it's that it's okay to keep or whatever. Um, but certainly, you know, with Indigenous artefacts, if you find stuff, you're not supposed to keep them. Um, look, thank, thanks for that um, for that look at archaeology. Look, um, let's lighten the mood, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that that, um, that was a bit uh, <laughs> very, very in-depth. That was fantastic. Um, uh, look, I don't know why, but we were talking about movies before and the first thing that came to my head just then was Indiana Jones. Yeah. Has that do, – do, do you feel that's hurt or, or helped the sort of archaeology <laughs> uh, industry or, or sphere of vocation? What would you call it? A, a, a career path? <laughs> I'd say um, so. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, probably both hurt and and helped um, archaeology. I mean, it certainly brought it into the public eye um, in a big way. But you know, an archaeologist looking at Indiana Jones and what he does would say he's not actually an archaeologist. He's a treasure hunter. He goes out and destroys things in order to get that crystal skull or that you know yep. golden ark or whatever it is that he's looking for. Um, he doesn't really take a lot of care. Of the other things that yeah. are around it, <laughs> so you, you've never had to personally dodge any poison poison darts or anything. No, thank goodness. <laughs> no, um, I actually want to look at so look at some of the digs you've done. What, what do you yeah. think? Or what is the most the most interesting place you've ever dug before? Most beautiful, most interesting place you've you've ever done archaeological oh, dig? I have a couple of answers to it. The most beautiful place I think is in the Czech Republic in a cave in um, in the Moravian cask that they have there. It's like a big gorge. Uh, that's been carved out of limestone mountains. And so because it's limestone, it's really soft soft rock. So all of the water has got in and they've got underground rivers and things there and, and all these caves up, up the really steep escarpments and there's old medieval castles on top of the hills and things like that. So it was, it was absolutely exquisite. It was a sort of the sort of place 
that you would imagine um, was the original setting for Grimm's fairy tale. It, it's just it's just wow. magical. Yeah, yeah. Sounds amazing. Yeah, it was it was quite beautiful. It was a very beautiful setting. Um, I've worked at Port Arthur for a few months, working on a, a dig down there. That was really interesting, um, and that was a lot of there was a lot of public archaeology involved there. So we 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 had our our um, excavation uh, in the sort of central grassy area in front of the penitentiary, uh, and we also had off to one side a kids dig, and so the kids would come through once a day and have a little go at digging and sieving and washing artifacts and drawing them and things like that. I mean, we'd also have an Ask the Archaeologist session so the public would come up and we'd have a box of artifacts they could have a have a close look at and, and ask us any questions they wanted. So that was probably one of the most interesting experiences. Mm. Um, but there was also a site just south, just um, north of Melbourne uh, where we would, it was a fairly standard kind of, dig in that um, it, it was in, a, in consulting archaeology quite a lot of the work we do is is going into sites that might be developed in some way so if there's a road going through or um, a pipeline or housing development or you know things like that so you go in and, and you you do these quite quite um, large-scale excavations usually with an excavator actually they they'll scrape with the mechanical excavator and put it onto a big um, a big trailer, which is sort of a five by seven foot trailer, which is mesh and it's hooked up to a generator and they turn the generator on and the whole trailer shakes. And so it gets all of the soil out and then you push through the big clumps of it and you pick out the artifacts. So, you know, it's quite, you know, that's the sort of stuff we were doing. And there was this one site where we found a lot of, um, not only a lot of stone tools, but a lot of glass that had been shaped like stone tools. So you might have heard of those beautiful glass spear tips from the Kimberley. Um, you know, we weren't finding spear tips, but we were finding scrapers and flakes and um, other sorts of tools that that you could have used um, in the same way that you would use stone tools, but they were shaped out of glass. And some of the glass had been dated to the 1910s and the 1920s. So mm. automatically you could um, you could conclude that people were living traditional or perhaps semi-traditional lifestyles just north of Melbourne, about an hour north of Melbourne, back in the 19, early 1900s, but, but um, using these, these other materials uh, to make this their traditional tools, which I found absolutely fascinating. Um. That's, that sounds amazing. Um, what, what, what would you say is probably the strangest place you've, you've done a dig? Um, strangest place? I don't know. The, the Czech Republic dig gave me the chills sometimes because <laughs> you do if you've got an overactive imagination and you're in a cave and you're digging up cave bear bones, um, you do kind of sometimes imagine a big cave bear <laughs> appearing at the mouth of your cave. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then it suddenly turns into an Indiana Jones movie. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, look, well, well, I, I think each site, you know, each, each excavation has got its own, its own little unique um, little things. And, you know, if you're sitting there for hours on end scraping through the dirt and, you know, you, you're sort of paying attention to what you're doing, but your mind can wander and you can really start to imagine 
imagine mm. things as well. So, you know, I found that quite quite entertaining sometimes as well. Um, what, what's the most interesting or remarkable thing you found? Like the, it just blew your mind. You thought this is nothing will ever top this <laughs> fine in my career. Um, uh, there was a stone tool that we, we found in the Czech Republic which, uh, which turned out to be about, I think it was about 40,000 years old. And it was remarkable because the, the stone that it was made from was sourced about 40 or 50 kilometres away. So it was, um, it would have been a really valuable tool to whoever owned it because it had come from so far away uh, and they'd obviously just dropped it in this cave and lost it and, um, and never found it again until we dug it up. Um, but also... Oh, yeah. That's just it's just um, that's it was, that's probably that was probably the most remarkable archaeological find. When we were at Port Arthur, we found a um, dinosaur footprint um, on one of the rocky shelves out the back of Point Pure, which not very many people go to. So that was quite cool as well. Um, the resident archaeologist had never seen it before, so. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so it was, that was quite quite good. Right. Now, look, the, the archaeology in schools work you do, you, uh, you bring, uh, I guess, archaeology to to the students. You mm. know, they're, they're obviously not going to be able to, to go off and do an archaeological dig themselves, uh, in you know, unless they become archaeologists. Um, what, what reception do you get from the kids? Like, how, how, are they, how are they finding it? Are they loving this? Oh, they love it. I've done um, – so I do a couple of different types of workshops. Uh, the first one is just a general archaeological workshop, so just an introduction to archaeology. And I bring along all sorts of stuff for them to have a look at and feel and touch and, and study. So I've got a couple of replica skulls for that, which they adore, um, particularly my saber-toothed tiger. And I've got lots of um, stone tools that I bring along and bottles and um, – uh, pieces of ceramics that have actually been glued back together to to form pots or cups or whatever they are, uh, so things like that. And we just talk a lot about a lot about archaeology and the process and things like that. Um, the other one I have is an ancient Australia specific one, so we do look at a couple of case studies that um, um, that feature in my book Ancient Australia Unearthed, and um, so they can have a look at those case studies and actually try and unpack. Um, the, the evidence and try and come to some sort of conclusion or even ask more questions about that particular case study and that site or the human remains that are found or, you know, whatever it is that we're looking at. So there's those two main ones that I do. Um, I've also got the, the digs that I can set up at schools. So if schools are looking to do uh, you know, set up their own archaeology site, I can help set those up and, and help, you know, with professional development on how to run them. Um, but, yeah, so they're the main ones that I do. And, of course, professional development on ancient Australia and archaeology in general as well. And mm. look, you mentioned your um, you mentioned your book, um, Ancient Australia on Earth. I do have a copy of that, and I can't I can't say it is it is an amazing book. Oh, thank you. Um, it, it is yeah, it is really 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 good. Thank you very much for uh, for producing that resource. It's amazing. That's all right. <laughs> um, yeah, that actually came about when I was working at the Young Archaeologist Program at La Trobe, and I didn't intend to write a book on archaeology, but 
um, the main question that that teachers kept asking was we need more, you know, wh- where are the ancient Australia resources? And, you know, when I looked into it a little bit more, I did find some, but they were a little bit hard to find on the internet and certainly the textbooks at the time were fairly light on that topic um, and if they did include it, it was not particularly accurate. So I felt I could probably do something about that and that's how mm. Ancient Australia on Earth was born. That's great. Look, and, and it's uh, where I'm glad it, it did. Um, it, it was born because, it's, it's, as I said, it's a remarkable book and if people head to your website, they can um, access a copy there. Yeah, yeah, and there's always teacher discounts um, as well for this book. Yeah. Uh, and look, looking, looking at books, uh, I wanted to have a, a quick um, chat about your other sort of uh, hobby or a passion or, or mm. what would you call it? I'd probably call it my main passion, to be honest, my young adult your main passion? writing. Yeah. Mm. So you recently also um, released a book called Lightning Tracks. Yeah. Um, and, and as I incorrectly mentioned uh, before we started recording this, I called it, um, I called it um, historical fiction, but you rightly mm-hmm. said it's more along alternative history, correct? Yeah, yeah. So historical fiction actually looks at a particular time in history and and tells a tells a fictitious story, but it's set in a particular time period and a particular location, and it's very accurate in detail to that time and location. Um, alternative history is taking a point in history and running with a different outcome. So it might be what if the Germans had won World War II. Um, What if the Dutch had come to Australia and settled Australia before the British? Or what if nobody had ever come to Australia? You know, there are are all sorts of different questions you could ask with alternative history. So so it does use um, history up and, and it's historically accurate up to a certain point and then it deviates from that. So that's that's a, the most exciting thing I find about that writing. So, so why 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 do you why do you write that? Is it just your main as you said your main passion? But what what led you to think I really want to start writing this young adult fiction? Um, I have always written young adult fiction since I was probably a late teenager or early twenties. Uh, so it's something I've always been interested in doing and certainly that's sort of fed into my teaching and when I was working in publishing I was working a lot with with kids and, and education in that sort of capacity. Uh, so I've always been really interested in it and I, I guess with archaeology I found this beautiful um, this beautiful fusion of being able to use my archaeological background or at least my research um, knowledge there and applying it to something completely different or you know matching these two things up in ways that that haven't been really done before and and particularly with Australian young adult fiction um, it's still quite uh, I don't want to say young but it's 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 not quite as uh, rich and numerous as say other, other countries around the world Um, but we have a very unique uh, sort of library of young adult writers in Australia and I think Australian young adult fiction is just so exciting and when authors here are writing about Australia and they're not writing about you know sort of um, I don't know medieval England or you know which is equally exciting but it has been done a lot before I think it's really important 
for authors of places like Australia where there might not be as much literature around to really write about the place and really really get into the nitty-gritty and investigate you know what can we do with our setting what can we do with our history or what can we do with our contemporary society or what are these questions and what are these um, agendas and what are these politics that are happening at the moment and really really um, yeah really take it apart and and really criticize it uh, in ways that are that are new and fresh and I find that really exciting. Awesome. We're looking at people head again head over to your website. They can see a quick blurb mm. about what um, what the book is about, and they can also um, access a copy there. Yeah, yeah. So Lightning Tracks was very loosely based on the question: What if the Roman Empire had made it all the way to Australia? So, you know, there are there are a couple of conspiracy theories floating around in Australia. You know, they, some people think that the Egyptians made it all the way here, and, and some people do think the Romans made it here. And I've had somebody send me their um, amateur archaeology thesis of 20,000 words about an alien race that has arrived in Australia and mm. yeah <laughs> interesting interesting uh, interesting theory yeah so I wasn't actually able to write any feedback on that thesis but you know there are all of these different different ideas floating around and you know some of them are have actually turned out to be true such as the Dutch or the Macassans mm. from Indonesia or you know whatever but some of them really haven't turned out to be true but you just think well what if what if this had happened how would it be different today and and um and you sort of run with those ideas yeah and i think we'll we'll leave our listeners with that with that final question of what if what if Mm. something changed or what if something didn't go to plan in history or didn't follow its original path and something else happened what if what would life be like today on earth in our country, in our community, what if? Mm. And the beauty with fiction is that we can investigate that safely and enjoy the outcomes of it on the page. And as teachers, we ask ourselves that all the time. You know, what if that lesson had been done differently? (laughs) That happens quite quite often, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, and sometimes we do get that opportunity to retry it with a different class, but sometimes Mm. we don't. So it is very relevant to teachers. Um, Look, um, Alethea, thank you very, very, very much for joining us uh, on the podcast. Um, uh, It's been a great chat, a very, very insightful look at archaeology Um, and, of course, uh, looking at the, uh, I'll get it right this time, the alternative uh, history genre. Mm. Um, Any any final thoughts you'd like to leave our uh, listeners with? Oh, look, I, one of the, the things I love about archaeology and history and English and sort of the humanities, I suppose, in general, is the cross-disciplinary and interdisciplinary approaches we can have with it, and especially with archaeology and it coming into the curriculum in many different ways, in particular history. Um, we can just get so much from it, and that's one of the things that I absolutely love, particularly about history and archaeology. We can draw on all of these different ideas and disciplines and really fuse it together to come up with a really rich understanding of the past So, Alethea, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Marco. Thank you for listening. To continue the conversation, find us on Twitter at hashtag HouseChat. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network. aeon.net.au